You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. And it's not as nippy as it was and it's not raining outside, which is probably a relief for all those people who have been dealing with the gale force winds and uh, other uh, onslaught of rain across the uh across Victoria this week and Melbourne as particularly in fact um, must have been amazing up in the the hills when the rains were happening and the winds were happening it was bad enough down by the sea uh, as I was telling somebody it sounded like one of those uh, uh, stories that they tell from uh, the Vikings you know about the uh, warring um, uh, giants or ogres uh, fighting in the sky. That's what it sounded like on uh, Thursday or uh, Wednesday and Thursday night. Anyway, on Solidarity Breakfast this morning, we're going to be talking to Peter Job. He's written a book called, uh, it's actually taken from his PhD uh, dissertation, The Narrative of Denial, Australia and the Indonesian Violation of East Timor. Absolutely fascinating read. It's uh, being um, published by Melbourne University Press and there's a lot of uh, issues that he brings out, Peter brings out, that uh, are are sobering but also uh, quite uh, relevant to today and how the powers that be operate. Uh, we're going to then talk to Giles from the community, the Collingwood Community Gardeners. You would have heard uh, there was an article in The Age uh, last week that uh, uh, disturbed many people. They were quite amazed that there was uh, a move to cl- uh, lock out all the uh, community gardeners from a site that's connected to down by the river and it's uh, connected to the um, uh, Collingwood Children's Farm and uh, and it was all over a uh, external consultant's report which was uh, found there were unacceptable risks for visitors. Anyway, there's, a, there's much more to this story. This is a community gardening, garden that's been going on for 42 years and uh, despite uh, calls for a uh, negotiation meeting this week, obviously... Uh, it hasn't been resolved. So we're going to talk to Giles about what's going on there. Over the Wall is going to be talking uh, about uh, NDIS and uh, how things are going there. Um, This is the week that was. Kevin's going to dissect the week with satire. And Donald Sutherland is going to come and talk to us about the um, uh, uh, annual wage review because it's now coming to the pointy end of a... 
something that's very downplayed, but which is actually the um, base uh, rate for the lowest paid workers in Australia and therefore the lowest uh, minimum uh, rate for employment in Australia. An absolutely um, important, uh, vitally important um, element of the industrial landscape. So uh, even though it's constantly downplayed, which is interesting in itself. So Donald, uh, Don's going to talk to us about that because he keeps the, his finger on that pulse uh, and he does the work for us and uh, finds out about how what's actually going on. But before we move on to that, uh, I want to uh, alert you to a snap uh, demonstration that's happening or rally in support really at 2pm at the, the State Library. And I know that everybody is concerned around COVID because we've just come out of a kind of uh, lockdown. Um, well, it was it was a lockdown, let's face it, uh, over two weeks. And um, we have had uh, more uh, fresh uh, COVID um, infections. Uh, but uh, and we've, we're going to have to wear masks in and outside and, you know, comply with various things and uh, be far more assiduous with our QR codes when we're entering places. Uh, but uh, the, a COVID-safe uh, rally, uh, and it's a very important issue. It's in support of the Bailola family who have been kept in um, Christmas Island. It, it, it's been... Um, uh, reported that uh, the three-year-old um, Thonika uh, has been medically evacuated to Perth with her mum, uh, Priya, who's been uh, constantly ill over time. And we know that in uh, at Christmas Island and in, in general at the detention centres, uh, there's very poor medical oversight. And it's all very well to expect untrained people on site uh, without equipment uh, and blame them. But uh, it's quite clear that the system is a, a problem. Uh, she, uh, The young girl was uh, hospitalised on Christmas Island. This is according to RAC, Refugee Action Collective, uh, Christmas Island uh, and uh, with untreated pneumonia. Can you imagine? Uh, she turned for this Saturday... Her deteriorating condition was ignored for almost two weeks, they say, despite a temperature peaking above 40 degrees Celsius and desperate pleas from her mother for hospital care. The family have been isolated in detention on Christmas Island without adequate medical care for political reasons to keep them away from support on the mainland, said Chris bring from Refugee Action Collective. Supporters of the family will gather at the State Library, uh, Melbourne, at 2pm this Saturday, June 12, to wish Thonika happy birthday, to wish her a speedy recovery, and most of all, to call for her freedom and for the freedom of the rest of her family and for them to be permanently resettled in Australia. And he, he goes on, the possibility of resettlement in the US or New Zealand raised by the Foreign Minister and the Home Affairs Minister appears to be an, nothing other than a cruel distraction. Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews has now backtracked, saying, I actually haven't said that I'm investigating resettlement options for that family. 
In any case, Karen Andrews has the power to release the family into the Australian community where they are loved and wanted, said Rack. Breen continued, over 500,000 people have signed a petition calling to free Priya, Nadis and their two young daughters, Thanika and Kopika, and bring them home to uh, Queensland. Uh, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has ignored this democratic wave of support while elsewhere claiming to be a champion of freedom. Scott Morrison will claim in a speech for G7 Summit that, in inverted commas, our challenge is nothing less than to reinforce, renovate and buttress a world order that favours freedom. Absolutely fascinating because when we speak to Peter Job, we will see that those words from uh, Scott uh, Morrison are so similar to the type of words that were being used at the same time as uh, in East Timor, the uh, Indonesians had uh, aggressively invaded and the uh, East Timorese people were suffering uh, famine. Uh, while Australia was saying in a public, in publicly that it was a defender of uh, uh, freedom and democracy, and that, uh, but at the same time supported Indonesia's role in East Timor, and you know we just can't do anything about it. Absolutely fascinating um, similarity. So uh, anyway, uh, before we talk to Peter Job, a few messages. armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Band School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash band school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash band school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. CR's radio phone. Call now 9419 or visit 3cr.org.au and keep independent radio alive. Yes, that's right. Don't ring right now because I'm the only one here. Because <laughs> we really are community-powered radio station. But, of course, we you can do the SMS and you can also... Uh, go online. There's a, If you click on the online link to, to donate, you'll find that there's a variety of the station programs down the 
right side down the bottom where people have made individual pages. So if you've got favorite programs, you might like to uh, send your uh, dollar towards uh, them to show that uh, they are loved. But uh, right at the moment uh, on Solidarity Breakfast here with Annie, we've got Peter Job on the line. G'day, Peter. How are you? Good morning, Annie. How are you? Good. The narrative of denial Australia and the Indonesian violation of East Timor, absolutely fascinating read. Can you tell my um, listeners how you started this extensive investigation? Well, uh, this comes out of my PhD thesis. I should say Timor is... uh, uh, East Timor is something which is, I've been involved uh, for many, many years, going back to the late 70s when I was an activist uh, in it. But I completed a PhD at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, examining the policies of the Whitlam and the Fraser governments, but particularly the Fraser governments, towards uh, the occupation in East Timor and the role that Australia played in it, which was a very significant one, much more significant than most Australians realised, realize, not just... Um, in turning a blind eye, which is how some people have phrased it, but in proactively intervening, uh, first of all, to make the invasion much more likely, and secondly, to cover up the situation in East Timor and protect the Sahato regime uh, during the worst atrocities of the invasion that the invasion brought. Now, it is actually totally fascinating because I'm old enough to have seen the uh, ongoing process of uh, the uh, uh, activism. Uh, I mean, I remember the East Timorese uh, office in Gertrude Street. Gertrude Street itself has changed immensely. But uh, having been a person who did stuff at RRR and uh, at 3CR, I was aware of the activism. And... um, the ongoing issues, but uh, I also I was really um, uh, interested in a whole range of the elements that you investigated, especially as you say this notion that was uh, put forward that Australia had very little knowledge and also couldn't uh, stop the flow of. Uh, international affairs in your um you clarify these issues really well in your book and you uh, make it clear that uh, the difference between uh what's said and what's going on behind the scenes becomes a two-tiered or your forked tongue (laughs) arrangement Oh, indeed. That's, uh, that's, that is is quite clear under both the Whitlam and the Fraser governments. Um, under the Whitlam government, of course, Australia officially had to say that it supported a proper process of uh, self-determination. Uh, At the same time, it was effectively colluding, and that is not a strong, too strong a word uh, to use, to actually encourage an initiative takeover uh, of East Timor. I should say that during that time... Uh, the the Indonesian leadership was actually split initially on the policy they would take towards East Timor. Adam Malik and the Indonesian Foreign Minister, Ministry were very concerned um, <clears throat> about the risk that Indonesia's reputation would be damaged. It was seeking, <clears throat> excuse me, I have need a sip of water. It was seeking a major role in the world, especially in the non-aligned movement. And Adam Malik feared that uh, 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 an Indonesian intervention would, would um, 
make that more difficult. He therefore proposed accepting the possibility of an independent East Timor initially with, and try to, uh, trying to establish good links with it. On the other hand, there was a much more hard-line uh, faction called Opsis. Um, they were the people who'd been responsible uh, for the takeover of West Papua and who had also been heavily involved in the massacres of 65 and 66. They, on the other hand, uh, thought a takeover is Timor by any means possible. Now, Whitlam cultivated the Opsis group rather than the um, Indonesian Foreign Ministry. He sent his uh, personal uh, secretary, Peter Lewinsky, over there at a very early stage to speak to them. Uh, they then gave a series of detailed briefings to the Australian Embassy over a period of 18 months, explaining to them what, what entirely they intended to do, including uh, underlining... Uh, undermining the um, decolonisation process uh, through violence if necessary, which is what they proceeded to do with Australian knowledge and effectively complicity. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating to me this uh, uh, how um, one let let let's look at Indonesia now. Indonesia, this this faction in Indonesia had actually killed half a million people. Right in 1965 to 66, which is often overlooked, it seems, and it's the same th- uh, element in East Timor. People were sa- could be sacrificed. Ordinary people could be sacrificed for, if you look at it, what's been described as a Cold War analysis and anti-communism, which uh, overlaid the uh, obsessions of uh, Fraser. Now, Whitlam, on the other hand, uh, it's been pointed out to me, was a very arrogant person and probably had this idea that it was um, all the ducks in the row, that you could only look at these situations from uh, uh, very high up and not take into account, you know, the inevitable suffering of the local population? Well, Whitlam had a, did not like the idea of small independent nations. Now, I should say that Whitlam is somebody who I greatly admire. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it, it's, not, it's almost become a cliche, but in my place, it's completely true. I would not have been able to go to university without him. Um, nevertheless, he, he had a very Georgist view on East Timor. Um, it came actually from his view uh, of any of decolonisation. He supported uh, the Labour Party in its support for the Indonesian um, <clears throat> revolution, the Indonesian war of independence. That was before he was in Parliament, and, that, and that's how he viewed Indonesia. He thought that uh, East Timor was too small to be independent. He did not know much about East Timor, and he did not try and find out. Uh, he viewed that the he viewed the elements in East Timor that were campaigning for independence as relics of Portuguese colonialism, which which they absolutely were not. Um, however, having a, being wrong at the beginning uh, is one thing. Plenty of people are wrong about things, but if you take an evidence-based approach, you can adjust your thinking as things go along. That's what Whitlam refused to do. Yeah. When the evidence uh, started to emerge that there was indeed a strong independence movement and political parties were forming in East Timor, he was completely dismissive of them, and he continued to cooperate uh, with the elements that were plotting to violently overthrow uh, uh, the decolonisation process and uh, establish the conditions for Indonesian intervention. 
Yeah, no, that's really quite disturbing. Uh, the other element is the uh, the Australian um, government's naivety, and they would say that you know they were constantly talking about how practical and uh, realistic their approach was, but the incredible naivety that they had around the power power groupings within the Indonesian uh, state and how uh, the army. Uh, uses uh, colonisation as an economic bolstering. And that was effectively what's been going on in West Papua and continues to go on in West Papua and uh, was indeed what happened in East Timor. Well, the Australian government uh, strongly supported the Sahato uh, regime after it overthrew the uh, Sakano regime. It had purged the Communist Party of Indonesia we must understand that during these times, Cold War priorities seemed very strong. Um, Vietnam had just become unified, Cambodia and uh, Laos had fallen to communist governments. Um, and they saw the right-wing Sahata regime, which um, some of them actually described as a responsible and moderate uh, government, as one that was necessary for their strategic uh, regional security. Um, they felt they wanted to strengthen um, ties with ASEAN nations, and of course Indonesia was the closest and the largest and the most important ASEAN nation. So supporting the Zahato regime was one of the, one of their top priorities, and uh, the Timorese and the welfare of the Timorese people was not a consideration, and that was their major uh, policy failure. I should say, of course, that uh, six chapters in my book are about the Fraser government. One chapter is about the Whitlam government. Whitlam's had a lot of attention. What actually happened under Fraser was very, very important as well. And I've tried to correct the record in that regard by studying the Fraser government in depth as well. Yeah, yeah, it's because uh, Fraser, um, reminding people, Whitlam was uh, turfed November the 12th or November the 11th. Uh, November the 12th, 1975, the uh, Indonesians began their uh, takeover around that period and also the uh, journalists, the Australian journalists, were murdered uh, in 75 as well, right? So, uh, Well, the, there were two stages, well, there are actually three stages of Indonesian intervention. First of all, it was a clandestine undermining of the uh, um, decolonisation process that happened until... Uh, uh, September 1975, where there was an Indonesian-instigated coup uh, by one of the political parties in East Timor. That uh, led to a very brief civil war that only lasted a couple of weeks, in which uh, the, the grouping Fretilin, uh easily won and was soon in control of East Timor. Uh, the UDT elements fled uh, to and other and Apodeti elements, which is another political party that supported integration, fled to West Papua. Uh, the Indonesians then instigated their second stage, which was a clandestine military intervention where, where Indonesian troops disguised as Timorese um, infiltrated back into uh, East Timor and, and started attacking Bretland and attacking the civilian population as well. And the Indonesians attempted to depict this as a continuation of the civil war, which it absolutely was not. However, this... Uh, narrative was, was picked up by Whitlam. He said there was a continuing civil war then, there and Indonesia should be concerned about destabilisation on its doorstep, which wasn't the case at all. It was a civil war instigated by Indonesia. And they used that supposed um, 
it was a, it was a military intervention instigated by Indonesia, and they used the myth of the civil war as as a justification for um, letting Indonesia off in a way when it uh, invaded, saying it was uh, intervening to support its own security in the region, which was not an accurate description. Yeah, yeah, and, and people should remember there's a couple of the issues here, and you actually explore this, is that uh, the United Nations and the uh, general uh, uh, structure of world order uh, was complete, had quite clearly written down that, uh, uh, that what Indonesia did was uh, illegal, uh, that uh, Australia uh, knew about it. They knew what they'd done uh, because we had close ties with the uh, people who actually did it. But also the uh, ambassador, our ambassador to Indonesia was a, a, a drum, drum beater for Indonesia. Absolutely fascinating. Um, a man that got to die at 93 comfortably in his bed. Uh, Richard Wilcott, I'm, I'm not aware, has passed away, but... Uh, oh, mine, he's uh, not even dead yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, no uh, uh, he, he's, that, that is true. He, su- he supported what he called a realist uh, position on East Timor, uh, which, by which he meant supporting the Zapata regime and an Indonesian takeover. Of course, it, he was not singular in that regard. Richard Wilcott is, is well known, Um his uh, predecessor, Furlonger, took a very similar position, as did the ambassador after him, Tom Critchley. They were all they all took similar positions. So perhaps in this regard, you could say that Walcott as an individual has had a little bit too much press. His position was fairly mainstream amongst the Indonesian faction within the Foreign Department, Foreign Affairs Department. You um, also point and- out that the, there was a... Um, and this would have been obvious to anybody who had... Uh, um, an eye on East Timor, that there was actually a cabal of uh, journalists and uh, ANU uh, academics who were um, uh, massaging the uh, messages around East Timor. Well, there was a pro-Indonesian group. Some people have called them the the Sahat, the uh, Jakarta lobby. They were a group that uh, from that uh, supported the change that happened in. in uh, 65, 66 as being in Australia's strategic interests, and they existed before the Indonesian intervention in East Timor. I should say the full invasion of Indonesia happened on the 7th of December. The period in uh, that, that you referred to before was a period of a clandestine Indonesian intervention. Um, they saw supporting the Sahata regime as uh, key to their uh, foreign policy objectives in the region. Um, they were not interested in East Timor, and they actually didn't know a great deal about it. One thing that comes across in their telegrams <clears throat> in the later period during the Fraser government is that they were not well informed. Uh, they took Indonesian briefings at their face value and did not subject them to critical scrutiny. Um, they denied the extent of, catast- of the catastrophe happening in East Timor when there was ample evidence that a very, very serious human rights situation was unfolding in the territory that was costing tens of thousands of lives. Um, they, <clears throat> the Australian government under Fraser uh, campaigned in the international arena at the United Nations and elsewhere to try and remove the issue of East Timor from the international agenda. They, uh, they downplayed uh, 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 the fact that there was a catastrophe.
has to be happening there, saying that their evidence did not support it, uh, when in fact any objective uh, investigation would have found ample evidence of the severe human rights situation. Um, they belittled people who claimed otherwise, uh, and they uh, lobbied on a country-to-country -country basis to try and uh, um, downplay concerns, because there were increasing international concerns, and Australia did everything that it could to um, downplay those concerns and to stop investigations or uh, international concerns about East Timor. Yeah, yeah. I remember the time uh, people actually talking about um, ASIO following activists around, that uh, actually Australia did the work for Indonesia, even in, in Australia. Oh, yes, uh, the ACO did, did actively um, uh, surveil the, um, the solidarity movement, um, as they did other movements, of course. Uh, they uh, tried to mute the radio link. There was a radio leak in which I had uh, some involvement myself for, from 1975 to 1978. Uh, they, that was a two-way radio leak between activists in East Timor and uh, Alarico Fernandez, who was the um, Fretland Minister of Communication uh, with Fretland in East Timor. They captured three radios and the operators were charged, um, but each time the movement managed to get another radio operating uh, fairly shortly. Uh, they also attempted uh, to uh, that successfully in stopping people from travelling to East Timor. There was an attempt in 1977 organised by... Uh, Robert Wesley Smith, an old friend of mine, to try and sail to East Timor uh, with uh, relief material. Uh, that was prevented and they were charged. Um, and they attempted to mute the solidarity movement in, in other ways as well. I'll have to say that we have to finish now, but uh, there's an event at NIB's National, uh, new international bookshop on uh, Tuesday the 29th uh, of June 6.15 that people can go to to listen to more about this. Um, but I'll have to say, Peter, uh, it, it, it bears uh, reading because of uh, how, how much of the issues that you talk about and how they actually played out affect so many uh, issues of uh, that activists are involved in and how important activism really is. Indeed. Uh, well, I should say the event, as you say, New International Bookshop at 6.15 on the 29th. I'll be speaking as we'll, uh, we'll have a Timorese activist and some, another, some other people as well. My book is available through Melbourne University Publishing and in all bookshops. As for what you say... I can't, uh, I've, another issue I've been involved in myself, of course, is uh, uh, the refugee issue in recent years. Uh, there are many, many elements in common. Uh, the way the Australian government uh, uh, propagates a distorted and, uh, and untrue narrative about the, this situation is very similar. The way it ignores human rights uh, and the way uh, it campaigns in the international uh, arena in an irresponsible manner is also very, very reminiscent of the Timor situation, I find. Uh, yeah, and dresses up in the suit of uh, democracy and freedom at the same time. It's quite ill-making. <laughs> well, one of the points I make in the book is that the Fraser government uh, attempted to depict itself as, as a liberal internationalist government. It was active in uh, um, uh, some human rights issues, uh, but 
there was this massive disconnect, and the only way they could cover the disconnect that they had with East Timor was to pretend that there was nothing happening there. So they did everything they could to cover it up and to stifle um, international concerns about that issue and to protect the Suharto regime. Uh, this did two things. First of all, it uh, probably delayed long-term resolution of the crisis, but it also uh, delayed some short-term remedies that would have alleviated suffering. Um, from 1977, the, the International Committee of Red, the Red Cross was attempting to enter East Timor. Um, there were Australia at the same time was downplaying concerns, and the Indonesia refused to let them in. Uh, almost certainly, Australia's actions delayed the entry of the International Red Cross, and that, uh, beyond any doubt, cost many lives. Thanks for talking to us today, Peter. Thanks very much for having me. Why do sailors sail the sea? Why does one and two make three? Why does F come after E? Like you because I do. Why are apples coloured green? Why is tins sparkling? Why is snow what winters bring? Like you because I do. Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're moving on to a look at what's going on at the community Collingwood Community Gardeners uh, plot down by the Yarra near the uh, Collingwood Children's Farm and we've got Giles on the line. G'day Giles how are you? Hi Annie, how are you going? Thanks for having me. Oh good, I'm glad to talk to you about this this is really serious business Uh, uh, not last week, but the week before, I think it was, the uh, 
uh, plotters, uh, the Collingwood um, gardeners pl- uh, from the yep. uh, community gardens were told that uh, a um, external consultant's report found that there were unacceptable risks of visitors being bitten by snakes and impaled by star pickets and you were all locked out. Yeah, it was uh, completely unexpected and um, it was delivered uh, via a, um, a sort of lockdown Zoom meeting from the Committee of Management um, and uh, the plotters weren't able to uh, even talk to each other in that Zoom meeting or, or respond to the, um, uh, the the statement read out by the Committee of Management about their decision to close the plots indefinitely. Um, we're still sort of wondering what's actually going on because uh, we know there's definitely um, some safety issues that need to be addressed in the plots and there are always things that need cleaning up and maintaining, obviously, in a garden. So... The only way that that can happen is uh, if we have access to the gardens and we can do some working bees or you know do some necessary um, uh, repairs and so on. But at the moment, it looks like we're being indefinitely locked out and we've tried to reinstate uh, access this week by um, meeting with the farm, the manager, um, Konohiki, and um, com- communicating our, our, our discontent to... Um, to anyone who will listen, really, but um, it's been to no avail so far, and we've been told that we we won't be able to um, access our plots anytime soon. Right, there's seventy plots, hundred people involved. It's forty two years old. This garden, uh, um, yeah. and uh, Stephen Jolly, who's a uh, councillor at Yarra Council, ran a Zoom last Sunday uh, around yeah. this particular issue. Right, and the yeah. the safety issues seem to be spurious, don't they? Yeah, look, um, Steve Jolly's been great. He's um, been involved in a number of different uh, meetings this week with us, uh, the plotters, um, who are trying to campaign to reinstate access to the plots and to stop any planned redevelopment that uh, seems to be uh, on the agenda um, for the, from the farm. Um the safety issues are definitely there, like I said, and we're willing to. Um, oh, I don't mean I don't mean it like that. I mean that they're manageable. Exactly, exactly, and I mean we don't want to get rid of snakes. I think we all agree that um, snakes are a part of the environment and the ecology of the um, the river down there by the Yarra. So you just have to be careful and you know take the appropriate precautions. But we're not trying to um, you know eradicate things, or, or you know we, we can definitely. Um, work with the, uh, the, the, the farm as it, as it has been for the last 42 years. Yeah, but uh, Stephen was talking about, uh, like, he he actually had been quite proactive. He'd uh, spoken to the CFMEU and uh, yep. some other unions, and they had said that they were quite happy to come and have a look and give free labour to uh, fixing any paths or any of the other things that were at issue. Yeah, that's and, and it's great to have that kind of offer from the CFMEU. And um, I've spoken to them um, during the week, and we've organised to have a site visit on Tuesday um, at 10 a.m. to to have a walk through and look look at what the issues are that need um, addressing immediately. But we've communicated that to the committee of management and to the farm to say that the the CFMEU is willing to help address this issue as a matter of urgency, and, and they've denied that. Uh, 
from us and, and uh, are saying they won't even allow us access to, to walk through and see what needs to be fixed. Well, uh, the, when they say things like uh, creating a fresh vision for the precinct, that really does send yeah. a shiver down your spine, doesn't it? Yeah, look, we, we think that there's um, some further um, explanation needed from the farm as to what their intentions are here. And um, they, they do seem to be speaking now quite openly of, a, of the new gardens once they reopen. And so we're just wondering what that means and how involved plotters who've been there for generations, uh, families of migrants, for example, whose children took over um, gardening there once, uh, say, parents became too elderly or you know, children who are there regularly now with their parents and um, have uh, been able to experience gardening for the first time in the community. Um, you know, this is something that essentially has been closed off from them overnight and we're just really unsure as to what um, is going to be uh, the case once the gardens are reopened by the farm. Um, and so we're worried that um, people who have you know, um, a long-standing connection with the farm um, might not even be able to, to go back there now that it's been closed. Now, there's a couple of things. Uh, so the um, community garden's been there for a long time, but they're, yeah. they're not represented on the management committee? Uh, look, they have. we, we did have um, uh, membership to the farm as part of the, um, the fees that we pay for the allotments, um, and that has been uh, the practice in the past. But um, over the time, um, the, this uh, aspect of, say, um, your allotment uh, fees has no longer included um, membership to the farm and therefore the ability to nominate for oh, the Committee of Management. That's cheeky, and isn't so it? so we don't have representation at the moment. There is um, a discussion of of a working group that exists between the Committee of Management and, and some of the, the plotters on that working group um, where management is meant to be sort of happening. But we, we feel as though there's definitely been um, an erosion of uh, representation for the plotters over the last few years. And um, that's something that we're trying to address as a matter of urgency as well. Now, the efficacy for the community of people who actually work in the uh plots is um, undoubted, yeah. you know, it's undoubtable. I mean, not only does it yeah. put food on people's tables, but it actually alleviates mental stress, doesn't it? Exactly. And I mean, personally, I'd have to say that the ability for me to walk down to the plots a couple of times a week and do some gardening and um, getting in amongst the roots has really been something that, um, you know, helps me get through the working week. And um, it's not simply about um, growing Food, although it is a, for a large part, um, you know, about the pr produce that, that people are able to, to grow themselves. Um, it's also about the ability to, to spend some time, uh, yeah, in amongst the um, the weeds and the plants, and, and um, you know, organising a little uh, plot of, of soil um, that that really kind of. Um, means a lot to people and I've, I've seen this in the faces of the potters who are my neighbours and who um, I've seen online during the, um, the week in, in lockdown now, uh, meetings and it's really taking a toll on people. Yeah, yeah, and no, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, now okay. one, one of the um, uh, basic principles of having a plot is that you don't have any backyard, you have no other way of uh, interacting. Uh, 
right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we have people who, um, you know, um, don't live on, say, the ground floor. They don't um, have any garden access in their um, place of residence. And um, uh, part of the, the way that the plots have been prioritised is for people who are residents of Yarran who don't have access to gardening in their own home. And so a majority of the plotters, I would say, they um, don't have any other um, garden access um, where they live in the, in the, in the city. And, and as we know, there's increasing numbers of um, um, high-rise residential towers uh, going up in the, um, in the council area. And, and so access to green space and to, to space where you can you know, do some of this kind of um, gardening um, for, for food, but also for your, for your mental health is really important. Well, see, it's a classic community garden, the reason for why you have a community garden, right? And it's part of the community garden movement. Now, somehow or other, and the reason why I bring this up is because there was someone on the call pointed out something very interesting uh, about Peppermint. Yeah. I think it was Peppermint. What is, is it Peppermint Hill or Pep, Pep, the place up in Coburg that was going to be? Uh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. ha- how it was being sold off and then the, pers- the to a private organisation that they then intended to uh, yeah. use it for and get funds from the NDIS and that was a, an economic model. Now, there's this discussion about the community, uh, Collingwood Children's Farm, uh, having a yeah. deficit of $300,000 and that it perhaps this is its method of working out a way of, I mean, this is all uh, just, yeah. you know, off the top of the head. This is not, you know, nobody yeah. said it and they've not said it. In fact, they've been um, worming around saying things like the plots will be for people who are disadvantaged. Isn't that right? Yeah. Look. Setting I, people I, I against each other, basically. What's going on. But we're, what we're seeing here, I think, um, Annie, is, is the um, what I've, I've seen called the, the not, not-for-profit industrial complex. And so <laughs> yes. there's a sense here that, um, you know, we can take public uh, land, crown land. Um, it's it's uh, uh, managed by the farm and that's they're the trustees of that land and it's, uh, it's been zoned um, for community garden use. But we, we see increasingly um, not-for-profit organisations um, uh, sort of... Uh, lusting after this space because it's already uh, discounted in terms of its availability and, um, and and saying they'll administer it on behalf of the community. Well, I'm sorry, but we're the community and the community is already there. And so all that's happening is being, the, the, the community is being displaced by organisations which actually have, um, in some cases, not even a not-for-profit motive, but a profit motive. What's happening next? Well, um, the next thing is this meeting on uh, Tuesday morning, which we're hoping to get um, people uh, you know, down to, to represent us. Our local council is um, the state um, MP Richard Wynne's office is being contacted, as well as the federal minister for Melbourne, Adam Bant. Um, and we're hoping to have um, a walkthrough to assess the site and to, to start to repair relations with the committee of management. And so we've invited them to come to the table and to discuss what needs to be done with us. But at the moment, it looks like they're trying to um, ignore and, and delay um, any kind of requests that we've put to them. Do you, and you're talking about the farm management? Yeah. 
Yeah. And do you want other people to turn up there? Well, look, we understand that, that at the moment we're still under COVID restrictions and so I think there's a, a limit to gatherings outside of about 10 at the moment. So we're not calling on um, you know people to turn up at this time, but we do have um, you know the intention to promote this um, as a sort of social media um, action. Um, and so we just encourage people who are our supporters to um, you know post uh, uh, your support online, um, share your photos, share your stories of the Collingwood community gardens. Perhaps you have some things to share on our Facebook page. Um, yeah, the, there's a petition that's going around that's been signed by about 2,000 people on Megaphone, which we'd love to um, you know, can keep going over the next uh, little while, and, and we'll be getting in touch with those supporters to, um, to let them know um, what, what we're going to, to ask them to do next from here. Hey, Giles, uh, do you think that uh, next week at about 8 o'clock I could ring you to find out what happened on Tuesday? Of course, I'm happy to speak, and like I'm only happy to um, continue to have this as an open um, and public uh, dialogue because I think it needs to be um, heard by by the community, but also it needs to be um, clear that there's transparency issues here. We need to be having this discussion out in the open, so I'm happy to. All right, so we'll talk to you next week at eight a.m. and uh, that's our radiothon weekend. So feel privileged. Yeah, I'd also like to shout out to Priya Kunjan, who, who's been in contact with us this week as well from 3CR, and, and they've definitely been a supporter and, and um, hoping to speak with, with Priya as well next week, if possible. Cool. Okay, thank you very much, Giles. Good luck. All right, thanks for your time, Annie. All right, cheers. This week on Over the Wall, we speak to Vimiac, which is the peak Victorian organisation for people with a lived experience of mental health or emotional challenges. And we're going to talk today to Neil about the NDIS and how that's impacting people with mental health conditions and their experiences of NDIS. Neil Turton Lane, welcome to 3CR's Over the Wall. And Neil, you work at Vimiac. And could you begin by please describing your advocacy work and role with Vimiac in the community? Vimiac is a pink non-government organisation representing people with lived experience of mental illness or distress. And we work right across Victoria's health sector, supporting people who are impacted by mental illness or their psychosocial disability and provide a couple of different types of advocacy to people. General and NDIS, NDIS-related advocacy, which focuses on NDIS appeals, but also provides support to people who are encountering a hard time using the NDIS, having a hard time finding providers or want to make a complaint. Helping people with finding the right service provider, could you maybe give an example of type of work you've done there? some of the issues that you can assist or how you can assist people with getting a service provider that suits their needs? I think the transition to the NDIS has been really difficult, particularly for people with a psychosocial disability, finding providers who understand and can work with people who have mental health challenges. And sometimes that causes a lot of conflict and misunderstanding and a whole lot of stuff going on there. 
we'll sit down with the person, we'll find out what's going on for them to explore what their options may be about maybe giving another worker or if that service is not cutting the mustard, looking elsewhere. Yeah, just encouraging people. The NDIS is about choice and control. People shouldn't be pushed around or feel that they don't have choices. Very difficult for people, particularly in rural areas where there are less services. There are a lot more services in metropolitan areas. The further out you go, the less choices people have. Hopefully it's a problem that over time will be addressed when new providers come in to realise there is a market there. Yeah. The NDIS, it's still a very immature scheme and it's taken a lot longer for that kind of market side of things to actually to measure up. It's taken time to catch up with psychosocial needs and supporting people with mental health and disability and things that people might encounter as difficulties with the system. Are there some examples you can think of that people have encountered as they've been assessed in the past or dealt with service providers that where the assessor assessment or the service provider has had a complete misconception about the person's needs or about mental health and living with a mental health condition? There are a lot of services out there who want to provide minimal support and accrue maximum amount of hours from you. And that's not really in a person's interest. We often encounter people finding it's really hard to contact their service providers. Service providers aren't listening to them when they tell them they need specific support and disrespecting of people. And we hear that from providers when we talk to them really can't believe the way that they talk about their clients sometimes. You know, all those kind of things are hugely concerning and the NDOs is trying to do something about it now. They've developed a recovery-orientated practice framework supporting providers and disability support workers to eventually get the right kind of training so they'll know how to respond to people and try to understand what's going on for an individual and yeah what are some of the things in the development of a recovery oriented framework with the NDIS that you think would be particularly helpful the key one is being able to respond to trauma and the way that trauma manifests in people's lives trauma makes people uncertain about how they'll be treated by people they don't know sometimes quite easily impacted by comments by other people, reinforces past experiences of trauma that people have had. So that continues to impact on people. And so a better understanding around what people's needs are and and what they might have been through. We're talking about people who have had poor, unfortunate childhoods or experiences throughout their lives, violence, abuse, you name it. You need to be able to kind of like meet a person where they are at. And if they're responding in a way that you perhaps weren't expecting, maybe realise it might be due to their trauma and, and the willingness to understand what that might be and what their real needs are if you're going to provide support. As a past NDIS worker myself, I've thought about that a lot too because... One of the things which is there to protect people's confidentiality, as a worker, you don't know a lot about their case background. 
and their condition. So going in as a worker, I've always felt it's very important to come from a complete trauma-informed care perspective, avoiding any topics that could be triggering, but also the way that we even approach the physical space with someone just always waiting for the person to lead with their cues, for them to be comfortable, not push people to do things. It's really about creating that safe space where the participant, the person themselves, feels that they're in control of the situation. And if they want to reveal any information such as, I'm finding this really difficult because this is triggering for me, that's up to them. But as a worker, we can try and create a caring and safe space. Yeah. There is a tendency to want to help or fix people, but (laughs) fixing a lifetime of harm and challenges is not something anyone really can do. And it's not really what people want, but they do want to be listened to and understood. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen too often. And with recovery-orientated practice and work, it's about understanding that recovery is not always a linear, one-line, straight-direction process towards recovery. There's times of setbacks, there's times of unwellness, which are also opportunities for increased learning and increased understanding of support needs for people too. Absolutely, and it's a lifelong process. It's not something that happens quickly. Like People's lives may change. People will live with problems and sometimes they'll surface more than others. Some people, it's certain times of the year. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. We do need to be able to support and understand, you know, if they have a psychosocial disability and they're on the NDIS, it's pretty well damn significant. You don't get onto the NDIS very easy. The people who do really have quite severe, enduring, lasting disabilities caused by their illness and their and their trauma. And we need to be able to respect that and work with people and work at their pace and be there to encourage them and be human and treat them like another person by validating people's experiences and on a journey as we all are we're all on journeys people are immensely brave and have overcome enormous obstacles in their life yeah and that needs to be recognized and acknowledged we spoke a bit about some difficulties with services does that connect with the unfortunate stigma that comes around living with a mental illness and stigma unfairly and untruly associates having a mental health condition as a person perhaps being less safe and We hear those stories portrayed in the media and it creates that incorrect impression. Oh, absolutely. And I prefer the word discrimination because I feel that's what it is. And, you know, I think stigma kind of like makes it seem like it's okay. It's just because people don't know. But, you know, we're talking about discrimination against people who are different. It's just not people with a mental illness, but you're right, there's a lot of media typecasting of people with a mental illness and promotion of stories about violence when the reality is that people with a mental illness are far more likely to be the victim of violence and often have been, and that's where their mental illness, their trauma has come from in the past through violence and abuse. And it connects back to that theme of the need for the person for safety with the NDIS because they're allowing another person 
perhaps from the start, you know, who they don't know at all to their home or into their space to develop that trust with people when people are already dealing with past trauma and, and their health condition. You're right. They're putting a lot on the line and sometimes they don't have a great deal of energy to give. That's why it's important that workers are able to understand and work in ways that people need. Yeah, otherwise it's not really a support, it's more hard work. And the NDIS, while it's incredibly enabling on one level around choice, it also puts a lot of responsibility on participants as well. That needs to be recognised and not everyone can cope with that level of responsibility or they need support. Mentioning responsibility, are you thinking of things like having to be always there at the same time each week or also some of the other things that are in their NDIS contract? People talk about that a lot, about no-shows from workers or disrespectful behaviour by workers. They're always on their phone. That's a big one for me. I'd see workers out with participants and like they might be in a cafe and the workers are sitting there on their phone. They're not being present with the person and I think it's disrespectful. Yeah, big issue. A weak solidarity Bricky team listener when Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, bucket up all those cynics who claim he doesn't have a climate change, if there is such a thing, policy, by going green. Indeed, declaring we must go green for the good of the country, the good of the economy, which is the same thing. Let's check what he said. Here it is. Yes, yes. Even though rejected in the omnibus caring business class relations bill, we must have greenfield agreements or the caring business class won't invest in big projects and the resource industry. See? Green. They need certainty, the poor dears, and an agreement on wages and conditions for the life of the project or the life of the mine helps provide that certainty, the certainty that evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers can't stuff things up by asking for pay increases and improved conditions every couple of years. The sheer common sense of this was highlighted by the sundry chambers of profits who got together to tell us greenfield agreements were an utmost priority. The caring employer groups collectively urged the more lash sun government to pursue these modest and incremental caring business class relations reforms. They represent the right policy approach for the immediate objective of assisting true workplaces and the economy and would set up our nation to consider more transitional workplace reforms in the next term of Parliament that would seek to align Trublowasi's IR system to the 21st century modern business environment. Direct quote, no embellishment. Leading us to ask, why does something couched in benign phraseology sound so sinister? The 21st century business environment we put to spokesperson Michael Bloated. Uh, yes, 
he enthused, revealing himself a Beatles fan. Imagine there's no unions. It's easy if you try. No one to stop us. Profits rye piling high. Right, and the gravity, the necessity to introduce Greenfield agreements urgently was supported by the Trublowazi Capitalist Review, which editorialised that if the Socialist Party rejected the proposal, it risks being portrayed as a threat to new mining projects. That is serious. And yet, the evil unions and the Socialist Party showed they are a threat to new mining projects. Evil unions throwing up ludicrous suggestions like workers would have their wages and conditions frozen for years. A, a suggestion rightfully scoffed at by caring employers who said that was simply not so. Without quite explaining why it was simply not so. So when Scummo was asked about Trublowasi's climate change, if there is credentials, while observing the others, he can boast his greenfield support. Highly responsible and super-efficient AMP on the customers has been hit with charges over charging more than 2,000 customers' fees and services, well, non-services really, after being informed the particular customers were dead. AMP on the customers' graves, described rather unnecessarily by the Trublowazi Securities and Investments Commission as unconscionable behaviour. Charges arising from the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission into the financial world, showing the mills of ASIC grind slowly but surely do they. Although in fairness, AMP on told shareholders this week it had informed ASIC about the matters in 2018, before the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission began. Uh, so what brought on this decision to report? Well, as soon as we knew we'd be sprung at the commission. Yeah, I'm not sure that's the absolutely best defence. Just for the record, the Minister for Unbelievable Stupidity, Richard Colback Profits, was again asked how many aged care staff in facilities for which he is, is responsible had been vaccinated. No need to record this really, but his answer, you guessed it, I don't know. Just thought I'd mention that. I wonder what he thinks he gets paid for. A US of the UN of the US of the world news outlet ProPublica published analysis showing the 25 richest US of filthy rich of the filthy rich paid relatively little and sometimes nothing in federal taxes. That one of them, amazing wealth supremo Jeff Bezos, while his personal filthy rich swelled to $18 billion a couple of years ago, reported losses and received $4,000 credit from those who can't avoid their taxes. Naturally, the government reacted quickly, urgently to the revelation. It will attempt to extract more of their profits from the filthy rich, I hear you say. Well, no. No, it is investigating taking criminal proceedings against ProPublica for the disclosure of private tax information. Well, we'd assume they wouldn't be totally unaware that the filthy rich of don't take paying taxes all that seriously, or certainly not as seriously as they take not paying taxes. No, no, correction, that they meet all their legal tax obligations. Similar government reaction here to Dr. Samantha Cromfoat's real name, whose firm did research for the military, which had the unintended consequence of uncovering the alleged war crimes committed by cream of Trublowazi youth, young men and women in uniform, just love their families and dear little children, life of the party trained killers in Afghanistan, showing they don't equally just love Afghan families and dear little children. Her research leading to the con mission, which found lots of alleged war crimes, and now 
Samantha has written a soon-to-be-published book, Bloodlust, Trust and Blame, arising from her findings. While we await any charges, if any, ever to be laid, the government would welcome the facts being discussed by Dr. Cromvotes, I hear you say again, and again, no, no. That giant mind, the Minister for Train-Killing train Constable Peter Duffer, attacked her for taking advantage of a government contract, promising she would never again receive a train-killer contract, and he had sought legal advice about the publication, presumably to prevent it. Her crime apparently being that she exposed what they've been up to. Little matters like war crimes. In the past, Pete dismissed them, I do have, you know, like real concerns about the whole situation. And I just want to make sure that I get to the bottom of this like, you know, Pete said. An unnecessary diversion from his major objective of declaring war on evil China, informing us we need lots more US of train killers and train killer merchants of death merchandise in Trublowasi. Because evil China posed a challenge to, you know, like liberal democratic values, like. He didn't quite explain how, but it's a bit like Joe Biden capital defending US of values, which we'll come to shortly. We must prepare for whatever threats, you know, like loom, Pete was on the warpath. And would it be disrespectful to suggest the biggest threat we can see looming is Pete? Speaking of defence, the major defence in that defamation case seems to be that train killing is train killing, and he was very good at his job. If he didn't kill Afghans, they would have killed him, leading us to ponder what we were doing killing Afghans in the first place, or more particularly in their place, and the real war criminals, those who sent them there to practice their profession of killing other people. Killing reputations. We caught up with one of the leading thinkers in the state-caring business class opposition, Louise Silly, following her recent medical procedure to extract her foot from her mouth. A couple of questions, Louise. Did you, one, hit your head when you fell? Two, call an ambulance? Three, call the, sorry, police? Four, had you spent a little too long in the member's bar? Five, what is your definition of a brain fade? And six, have you sent the state supremo, the pejorative Dan, a get well soon card? Oh, and if the answer to one, did you hit your head, is yes, do you think that might have made you silly? Sorry I can't provide the answers to those important questions, listener, but at this point, Louise called security, and the week that was was last seen tumbling down those steep Parliament House steps. And you can determine from the quality or otherwise of today's content whether I hit my head or not. And finally, as US of big supremo Joe Biden capital headed to Europe, he told a crowd of cheering train killers, I will be defending our values. Oh dear, it's a worry. Especially with our scummo over there observing all this bound to assure Joe, let me assure you, we too will defend your values, uh, whatever they are. Good morning. 3CR Community Radio, giving voice to the community since 1976. And what a sweet voice that is. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day Don, how are you? Thanks, Annie. Just uh, recovering and looking forward to getting out about again after the lockdown here in uh, uh, Nam, uh, Melbourne. Yeah, it's a bit bewildering, isn't it? Uh, Going into lockdown, then coming out. 
I think uh, we're all, you know, we've been fantastic as a whole. I mean, there are always people who do the wrong thing, but uh, overall, um, the great mass of the population have been really courageous and determined to do what is necessary to um, make sure that this very destructive virus doesn't spread. Well, I suppose in the back of people's minds is that uh, you might know that uh, America has now reached 600,000 people dying from COVID and they've probably stopped counting. Yes, exactly. And of course, um, as, uh, relatively speaking, the same sort of even worse numbers in other countries who are champions of neoliberal capitalism like India and uh, Brazil. I know, it's really nasty. And then in other countries, uh, exemplary examples about how modern societies can, in fact, deal with pandemics. And uh, I'm thinking there particularly of Vietnam, the state of Kerala in uh, India, and, of course, Cuba. Um, But today I thought... we should continue discussing what the situation is as far as wages are concerned in Australia. Um, And there are several reasons for that. Firstly, um, uh, although there's a lot of commentary about it in recent weeks because of the annual wage review, um, there is not always a great deal of uh, uh, useful uh, direction for workers to consider in terms of how to improve their standard of living on the wages front. And, of course, it is the... We're now at the pointy end of the annual wage review, the six-month period in which the various interested parties, as they're called, can make submissions to the Fair Work Commission, which has come to an end, and all the submissions are in, uh, and uh, the Commission Expert Panel, as it is called, um, uh, I've got my doubts about whether they are really the most desirable experts one could want. But the oh, do you uh, know the uh, breakdown of their political interests? Well, uh, not so much their political parliamentary preferences, but I do. What I do know is that to a person, they embrace either a soft or a harder version of neoliberal economics. Right. Okay. So all of them are steeped in that very conservative market. The market is king approach. Okay, and and that also explains why every time the mainstream media talks about this annual wages review, they always talk about it from the point of view of the uh, boss class. Well, um, not, not completely in mainstream media. There has actually been some very good... Information about what's going on with wages relative to other forms of income, not just profits, but other forms as well, including the social wage, by three or four, well, maybe more, about half a dozen journalists who are highlighting the absurdity of the government's position, which is to construct an economic strategy in the form of a budget that is dependent upon wage increases but then as a matter of policy, (laughs) assist the employers to drive wages down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there there is some good information-type reporting, not very good analytically, um, and you can find those in the pages of uh, the the ABC online. There's one or two people there who do a good job, and then also in uh, the New Daily and The Guardian online.
and there's probably some others as well. Um, however, let's have a look at the most recent developments uh, because the big concern I have about is how uh, we in the union movement respond are responding to these. Uh, and this is in the context that there is an ACTU Congress coming up, which will be a virtual Congress um, in uh, apparently in July, although there's very hard to put one's hand on information about it and so on, but uh, um, we'll leave that aside for the moment. So the final submissions, there were only four. They were due into the Fair Work Commission on the 8th of June. The ACTU put in a 65-page submission, which is, I'm, from, I think has got some very positive content in it, very good content in it. It was very thorough, and the ACTU has been quite diligent in its approach to arguing the case for its 3.5% claim for across-the-board increase to the minimum rate, to minimum wages, including the national minimum wage. Now, uh, one feature of it is that they were able to establish that what JobKeeper and other forms of support that the government increased in billions of dollars during the pandemic held up and increased profit, but did not increase wages. So during the period of the pandemic, the government support has been all about increasing profits while wages have stagnated and in some cases fallen. Now, there's some... And they provide hard information about that. So that breaks the the connection that uh, a lot of people have, that... uh, uh, that if a business is doing well, then they'll retain their jobs. I mean, you know, like yes, that there are this paternalistic notion that the boss is their their father or mother, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, that we've got to make the company we've got to make the company profitable because that makes our jobs more secure. Well, that 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 has always been a nonsense. Yeah, yeah, but it's a very strong. I think it's a strong flame yeah. in uh, workers' minds. Yes. I agree with you. I think that's correct. And that's what, and one reason for that is because there is very poor, there is a very poor approach to educating the modern workforce about how wages and profits interact with each other and how their own hours at work, whether they're excessive hours in the form of overtime and overwork or whether they're inadequate hours because they can't get enough work, whatever their time at work, but there is an interaction between what comes out of the total effort they put in uh, between profits and wages. And there's very poor effort these days with just about every union in being able to explain that and therefore being able to explain the significance of the annual wage review itself. Two and a half million people are directly affected by this decision. And alongside of what any government might do about the tax structure, it is the single most important annual decision affecting not directly two and a half million workers with flow-on effects to millions of others. So to not have a good grasp of wages, policy and strategy is really uh, a big problem for us because it's not, as you say, uh, as well as understood as what 
working classes of previous generations have been enabled to understand. The I think the, the other submission of significance in this final effort has come from the Australian Industry Group, arguably the most important of the employer organisations. Their submission was just four pages, and they just reiterated their demand for a 1.1% increase only, which is their definition of the word cautious. But, you know, remember that their very first submission back earlier in the year said that it didn't name what the didn't say what the increase should be, but said emphasise the cautious approach. Well, they've defined that as 1.1% now, but they also want the clustering method that was used last year to be retained, even though on some measures we there is emergence out of recession into recovery. Now, last year, the clustering enabled that last year's increase should occur for some workers pretty well straight away, as is normally the case in early July, but then be delayed for other workers in two other clusters according to how badly they were affected. And the workers who are in industries that were most effective, but in other words, the workers who suffered the most had to wait the longest for their increase. Wow, that's, that's incredible. And the other thing is it's all about... That's the, uh, neoliber- that, Annie, uh, that's the neoliberal perspective of the employers and the commission in a nutshell. Well, that, that's attacking the weakest... And uh, most desperate first, and yes. dividing everybody up against each other. And the ACTU, of course, is, and quite correctly, wow. is staunchly opposing that. Wow, they, the they're streets. real creeps, aren't they? They well, uh, they are what they are. They, you know, they are champions of exploitation. Yeah, they are. They should have a the T-shirt. Depends on exploitation, and so they are champions of it. The uh, the. The other, the, the federal government didn't even make a final submission. So oh, well, that would that would mean that they'd have to work. Uh, well, they are working. I wouldn't say the problem with them is they're working. <laughs> they are actually because one of the things they're doing is in, working with the employers to find a way to resurrect those uh, more, most recently defeated changes to the Fair Work Act, which gives even more power to employers to drive down wages and conditions. So they are busy. Yeah, yeah. We, we really have to come to the end of this, but I'll have to. I'll have to say, last night, Bill Shorten said this really funny thing on the uh, when he was being interviewed. He said about uh, uh, the um, uh, support for uh, Victorian workers and how the uh, federal government has been carping. He said he actually said if uh, Scott Morris, why did Scott Morrison want to be prime minister if he didn't want to be, do the job properly? <laughs> well, well, you see, I think that's, you know, I think that's shallow, to be honest, mm. because it, because it's it's really not grasping how the fact that, in fact, the alliance between the the employers and the government is winning. We're not taking the enemy seriously enough. They are working their butts off in their interest. Sure are, and uh, and that is in, that is intensely damaging to the majority of the population on several white fronts, starting with the wages front. 
perhaps we could finish with this. A union movement... You see, we have a smaller union movement with small resources than, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and yet it has a bigger agenda to deal with. This makes elected union leadership more complex, actually. And I'm not sure that the current leaders have... I'm not blaming people like Sally McManus and Michelle O'Neill for this, because the problem is really all of the leaders of all of the unions that make up the ACTU, I don't think they've got their head around what is the correct strategy for workers at the moment. Because what we do know about the one at the moment is that it's inadequate, as brave as it is, in pockets of the working class with... You know, there's dozens of disputes going on. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. But they're not being channeled and they're not being linked to the big one. And the big one is how do you raise the general level of wages? How do the strong support the weak in a solidarity relationship? That's exactly right. Those things are not being worked out. Yeah, yeah. And I think we have to, if the, anything that, the, that any worker can do from below is challenge what we're dominated by at the moment is a culture of complaining about what's wrong. Oh, no, things have to change at and people have to level, step that's, up. That's not just leaders. No, no, that's, that's right. Those, that's like those of us who participate from the base of the movement. We've got to move from complaining to proposing the alternative and then engaging in a struggle for it, principally against the employer's but to some extent within our own ranks. Yeah, it's, a, it's about knowing your own power and who, what you're actually fighting for and ho- holding that line. Stop, stop yeah. being confused, basically, it's by all this carry, carry on. It's worth remembering that some of our big victories were delivered in the context of a divided union movement. In other words, the right-wing unions did not wish to struggle for the victories. They want to decide with the employers yeah, and yeah. sympathise with them. The left-wing unions, on the other hand, decided to fight and struggle. And bit by bit, the members of the right-wing unions joined in with them. Yeah, and Australia benefit as a whole. total unity to win. All right, Don, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. So much more to be said about this. It's really important that we get our heads around it. Well, perhaps uh, I can book you in for half past three, uh, 8.30 next week because it's Radiothon time for Solidarity Breakfast and I'd love to have a chat with you about why it's important for you to have your chats on Solidarity Breakfast. Very happy to do so. All right. We'd talk- love to join in on that. Talk to you next week. All the best to everybody. Bye. Yeah, and it is. It's the end of the show today. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We uh, heard from um, Peter Job, uh, The Narrative of Denial. Don't forget the uh, new International Bookshop event, Tuesday the 29th of June, 6.15. Collingwood Community Gardeners are on the warpath, as they should be. We talked uh, um, over the wall was all about uh, a very interesting discussion about... uh, uh, for people who are on NDIS. This is the week that was, and then Don talking about the annual wage review. Next week is our Radiothon. Hopefully you'll be able to contribute. Uh, we'd love to hear from you.
This is Annie signing off. As I said, Asia-Pacific Currents are coming up next. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.